I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. And if this is your first time hearing our show, I gotta be honest, this is a pretty great first episode to check out. Our show is based on a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today. And every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us. So please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And this week, you know, one of my favorite things to do this time of year is to look at all those best of lists, you know, best music, best movies, best, I don't know, episodes of your favorite education podcast. Yes, in the spirit of best of season, we are revisiting some of my favorite Teacher's Lounge conversations of 2023. It's been a really awesome year for us, honestly. We started the year with a Teacher's Lounge live from a real Teacher's Lounge, talking with elementary school teachers in Sycamore, Illinois. We got the chance to record the show in front of a live audience at beautiful Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin. And we even had an education panel conversation at the Illinois News Broadcasters Association Spring Convention down in Springfield, Illinois. We also continued our classroom correspondence series over on the Teacher's Lounge radio show, where we show a year in the life of a teacher. And we introduced our student correspondence segment this year. We followed the students on the DeKalb High School esports team in the spring, and we're highlighting the DeKalb High School forensics team right now. Teacher's Lounge even won an award this year from the Illinois News Broadcasters Association. And of course, we had so many other amazing conversations with educators nominated by you. Again, we very literally could not do this show without you. So thank you to everyone that has taken the time to listen here or on our Teacher's Lounge radio show and maybe even submitted a teacher in your life for our show. Again, you could do that at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And sincerely, thank you to everyone for making another year of this show possible. Right now, we are going back and showcasing a few of our favorite conversations of the year. They're teachers from very different backgrounds who teach very different subjects and all had a lot of great stuff to share. We're bringing you four conversations today, two longer and two shorter ones. It'll be a longer episode definitely to hold you down through the holiday season. First up, we listen back to my conversation with Jill Kelly. She's a hearing itinerant teacher, a special education teacher who teaches deaf and hard of hearing kids at the Huntley Community School District. She's also been a sign language teacher and interpreter for decades, and she's interpreted everything from political speeches, dog obedience, swim meets, and karate classes. And we talked about how she learned sign language in the first place and what a hearing itinerant teacher actually does from technology to self-advocacy. So I first saw sign language when I was five years old on Sesame Street. There was that deaf lady, Linda Bove. So I, you know, enjoyed seeing her. I don't know, yeah. you know, if you know who she is. Oh, yes. But, yes. No, also um, a Sesame Street kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I saw Sesame Street and I saw it whenever she was on, I got very excited. Um, and just as a five-year-old, you know, kindergartner thinking that that lady on, sign, you know, on Sesame Street's you know, interesting to me, and then really didn't do anything with sign language um, until I was 10. My parents said, do you want to go to an overnight camp? And I was like, sure. And it was a two-week overnight camp in Wisconsin somewhere. And when I got there, they gave me a piece of paper and they said, check off five things and you'll do these five things every day for the next two weeks. 
Um, so I remember I checked off gymnastics. I checked off trampoline. <laughs> Two and good strong choices for summer camp. Yeah, yeah. And I remember being 10, you know, it was like not, you know, recently, this was a long time ago. So I checked off sign language. I was like, oh, that's cool. Well, you know, I've always thought that Sesame Street lady was kind of neat and sign language was kind of cool. So um, every day for an hour, um, a lady would teach us sign language at this camp. And I thought she was amazing and fascinating and the coolest thing. And um, I really enjoyed that hour, you know, being 10 years old at this overnight camp. So after, you know, 14 days, I went home and it was like, okay, you know, I don't have any deaf relatives, neighbors, classmates, anybody who I know who used sign language. So I just kind of kept it to myself, thought about it all the time, practiced the little phrases and words that I learned. Sure. And then the next summer when I was 11, my parents said, do you want to go to that overnight camp again? And I said, sure. And again, checked sign language when I got my list of what do you want to do every day? But I found like, oh, I remembered everything from the summer before, and it kind of came easily to me. So I got brave enough to row my little rowboat over to the other side of the camp where there were special needs kids, and I tried to sign with some of the deaf kids on the other side of the camp. When you so say row your boat over there, kind of I mean, fun. this is summer camp. Do you literally mean row your yeah, boat over so there? there was like a big lake. <laughs> oh, really? There was a big lake, and there were, you know, regular ed kids on one side, a big lake, and then special ed kids on the other side. So I got brave enough to like go over and try to communicate with them because I thought, you know, it's great that I even at, at 11 years old, I thought this is great that I know sign language, but I have like nobody to try to use it with except the teacher, you know. Right. So I went and found kids that were my age and I tried to sign with them and I thought it was so um, amazing just that I could communicate with them. Yeah. How did do you remember so those then, first times that you like actually tried yeah. to communicate people with sign. Did it go well? Did they I understand you? I was like really nervous, but yeah. also excited, nervous and excited. So then again, I went home and Peter, I had nobody that knew. I didn't even have a book, nothing. So then when I was 16, my mom showed me a community education booklet that offered sign language classes to adults. And so she said, you should take this. And I said, I should take this. I, she said, you've always, like your whole life, you've been really interested in sign language. You should take this community ed class in the evenings. And I was 16 in high school. It said very clearly that you had to be 18 or older to take the classes. And I was like, oh, you have to be 18. Yeah. I'm only 16. And my mom said, call and tell them you've always been interested and maybe they'll let you in. And I said, that's a good idea. So I remember calling and I remember saying, you know, I really want to take this class. I know it's for adults, but I promise I won't giggle and I will be very serious. <laughs> I don't know why saying I wouldn't giggle would get me in, but <laughs> I said, I won't giggle and um, I'll, I'll be very serious. And they said, okay, we'll let you take it. So I took a community education sign class and I had a teacher named Alan and Alan knew sign language because his parents were deaf. So that was actually his first language. And I thought Alan was just best thing ever like I thought he was so incredible how how cool it was that he could just talk and sign and he knew every word and that was his first language and just fascinated by he fascinated me I don't think people even so, realize that people's first language can be sign you know it really can be yeah. he had deaf parents of course so they signed to him you know they couldn't talk to him yeah they signed that was his first language so 
I took his class and I just thought, okay, I, I, I truly can say I love sign language. Like, what can I do with sign language? So I'm the oldest of five kids and I always played school with my siblings growing up. Um, I always asked my teachers when I was younger, could I have like the extra copies of the papers you're passing out? And I, I had a whole stack at home and I would play school like in my bedroom. So it made sense for me, you know, two years later when I was graduating high school um, to major in deaf education because yeah. I always loved kids and teaching. And then I had this fascination for sign language. So I thought I should major in deaf education. Um, back then, you could go to McMurray College, Northern, or ISU. So I went to ISU, mm. Illinois State University. And after I took my first sign class, you know, that 17-week sign class, um, I only lost two points. And I know, I know this because, and I tell this story to classes that I teach now. Um, I only lost two points that whole semester. Um, thought sign language was the, you know, just the best. Um, I'm surprised you don't remember so, the two oh, well. points that you missed. Oh, I do remember <laughs> yeah. the two points. One point was I had to sign a song and she gave me a 49 out of 50. Do you remember what song I it was? I signed an Elton John. Yeah, Elton John, Tiny Dancer. It's a great choice. <laughs> it's a really good choice. So I signed that song and then she did a dictation where she signed, the sign for today is Now Day. So she signed Now Day. I blah, 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 blah. And I, instead of writing the word today, I wrote now day. So I got a point off for that. The tiny dancer so, thing yeah, is, I do remember. is so good because I'm dance. sure you've seen that there's all sorts of videos on social media the last couple of years of sign language interpreters like at different concerts life. that yes. are like get so into it and like are dancing along so they, are amazing. they're always so yeah. so impressive and i know that you've done animated so. yeah, yeah, yeah those yeah. are crazy and the rapping ones like that's like beyond me i can't do that <laughs> so, um so after i took my class my teacher said you did such an amazing job in this class i want you to teach the lab to this class like next semester. So I was like, sure. You're like teaching people that so were also I, your age. <laughs> yeah, like my eight, like my peers kind of, you know, one semester ahead of them only. Yeah. So I taught that lab and I thought that was really fun. And then a place called the Center on Deafness um, in Bloomington said, um, would you be willing to teach some sign classes for us? And I was like, well, I've only taken one sign class. I'm only in my second sign class right now. And they said, well, we heard really good things about you. Would you be willing to teach? And I was like, yeah, I would. So, and I had a car. So I drove out to Bloomington once a week and I taught like community ed, just people in the community sign language. Looking back, you know, only in my second class myself, like that's like a little scary to think about these days, but right. you know, I did it. So then somebody who worked at the Center on Deafness had a deaf daughter named Ginny. And she said, would you babysit Ginny? And I was like, oh, that would be the best practice ever, you know, yeah. like having to. So I was like, yeah, and, you know, extra money, blah, blah, blah. So I agreed to babysit her. And that was just the best practice ever. Like I had to sign with her. She was 10. Um, she had a dog. I don't remember the breed or the dog's name but that dog knew so much sign language it was really incredible like she would sign sit eat bed bath go outside lay down like all kinds 
lots of things. This dog knew so much sign language. It was really incredible. Um, That's awesome. And then Ginny signed up to do something called the Gamma Phi Circus. It was like junior Gamma Phi Circus. And the mom said, she needs an interpreter. Will you interpret for her? And I said, well, what is that? She said, just stand next to the teacher and just whatever the teacher says, you sign you know, what to Ginny, whatever the teacher is saying. And I was like, all right, I'll try. And they said, they can pay you $9 an hour. And I was like, what? (laughs) Minimum wage back then was three (laughs) thirty-five. I was like, $9 an hour. I'm going to be rich. Of course. (laughs) Yes, I'll do it. So I started interpreting for Ginny and I was like, oh my gosh, I really enjoy standing next to another person, signing what they're saying to communicate to the deaf or hard of hearing kid. So then the university said, we kind of heard about you. You're teaching these classes at the Center on Deafness. You're interpreting for Ginny, babysitting for her. Will you work for the university? Will you sign, um, like if an interpreter is absent at the elementary level, like will you just, if you're free, like will you do that assignment and I was like sure and you were still like 19 20 I was still learning yeah Yeah. I was learning how to teach deaf kids you know still a student myself and then I had this great side gig like interpreting um then the middle school asked me to do it then university high school asked me to do it and then the college said would you be willing to work for us we will give you a, a staff sticker you can park in any teacher lot Will you interpret at the college level for your peers? Will you rearrange your schedule? Like when you're creating your schedule, will you work around students who need interpreters and like fit it in? And I was like, yeah, again, making this $9 an hour. And the staff you know, sticker like the parking. 50, like $50 paychecks. I was like rich. Plus and parking wherever you want. That sticker was amazing. <laughs> that sticker was the best. Um, so yeah, then I started interpreting. So while I'm learning how to be a deaf educator, I'm teaching sign classes at night once a week, and I'm interpreting all throughout the week for various levels, um, college level classes. Now, at that point, I had finished my second sign class. Yeah. These days, Peter, you can't just take two sign classes and call yourself an interpreter. Right. In the late 80s, early 90s, like you could. It was kind of like, do you know sign language? Yes. Okay, great. Will you be an interpreter? Sure. I started interpreting in 1989. I started teaching sign classes in 1990, and I have not stopped. I interpret for everything you can imagine, whether it's every, every sport, first of all, every sport, swimming, baseball, soccer, karate. I've interpreted dog obedience classes, motorcycle training courses, financial strategies for successful retirement. I've even interpreted for Hillary Clinton. I got to stand right next to her in 1995 when she was the first lady. Um, I was teaching for the village of Arlington Heights for five years. I taught every department at Arlington Heights. There was somebody... If you lived in Arlington Heights and you were deaf, there was someone in every department who could communicate with you for a five-year period. And Hillary Clinton's godson went to Hersey in Arlington Heights Mm. and he was graduating. And so as a first lady, she was flying in to attend her godson's graduation. And the village was like, oh my gosh, Hillary Clinton's coming to town. We have to have like a gala for her or something. 
And so they said, will you interpret for her? Um, there were two deaf board members on the board of Arlington Heights. So that's who I was interpreting for. So standing next to Hillary, signing to these two board members. And I have to tell you, first I said no, <laughs> and then I changed my mind and said yes. Um, so I got to stand next to Hillary Clinton and sign um, as she spoke and addressed 500 people. So I can say as my interesting fact about me, I have been frisked by Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's so, it's so interesting to me when you were talking about all the different things that you've interpreted for. I think you said dog obedience, karate, swimming, every single kind of sport. Talk about, like, yeah. obviously, as someone that collects as many degrees as you do and en clearly enjoys education as much as you do, mm -hmm. that has to be in and of itself quite an education, right? Because to do a certain thing, like, oh, you have yeah. to, like, kind of n learn and know about the activity so, like, and, like, pick up a lot sure. of that different stuff. Like karate, I still currently have a karate class I do every Tuesday night. Like it, I even have it right now. And I interpret for a girl who's going into eighth grade. It's Shotokan karate, so it's from Japan. And they say a lot of Japanese words. So I have to learn these Japanese words and know what they mean so that I can sign it in English. Like for instance, if they say Sanbanzuki, I know that that's three punches, so. I'll sign, you know, it's a punch to the head and then two to the stomach. You know, they talk about knife hand block and inward block and outward block and, you know, front snap kick, roundhouse kick, psych, you know, all these. Um, I have to kind of know what they are because the sign for roundhouse kick is, you know, I could sign, you know, roundhouse or I could just kind of like do one. <laughs> so I have to kind of know what a roundhouse kick is and I have to know what a knife hand block is. And It sounds like to I sign karate, like you kind of also have to do karate. Learn some karate. Yeah. So I always feel like I have like, you know, a lot of karate knowledge up here, <laughs> but like not karate ability here, like on my body. <laughs> so like, and then like she'll do a kata, which is kind of like a routine. So she'll learn a kata and sometimes she's facing forward for a couple moves, then sometimes she's facing to the side. So I have to kind of learn the routine too, so I can then run to the left side because I know the next move she's turning to the left. And then now she's gonna be turning to the back. So I know like in three more moves, I've got to run behind her. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm kind of learning the katas too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so certain things, are no brainers. I can just sign, get in, get out and be done. But like karate, you know, I have to invest a little bit more time and really learn all these different moves in a way. Um, so I can best relay the information to the girl. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And then you know, she's doing a kata and they're counting it out for her and she's moving to the left and moving to the right. And now she's facing behind I got to get in front of her, so I have to kind of know what's coming, so. It's, it's kind of a choreographed thing that you have to do there. Oh, for sure. Next up, it's Eugene Kalangashin, and we talk with Eugene about his journey from growing up in poverty in the Philippines and the dedication it took to get his college degree all the way to teaching special education here in the United States in Illinois. We also talk a little bit about his own childhood experiences and the trauma he experienced and how it helps him better advocate for his students now. 
In fact, that part of the conversation does include some descriptions Eugene has of the threats of violence he experienced as a child. So if that's not something that you want to hear or you have kids in the car, we totally understand. Just wanted to give you that warning up front. But it's time for our conversation with special education teacher Eugene Kalangashion. Enjoy. Did you always want to be a teacher or was it something that came to you later in life? It's more of poverty pushed me to, to get education, uh, Peter. During our basic ed days, elementary high school, one of the, the compositions, we got that composition writing or essays that were asked is, uh, what do you want to pursue when, when you grow up? And it's more of what gets into my head is to become a singer, to become a celebrity, things like that. And then that Are you a singer? Can you sing? I can a little bit. In fact, I stream on Twitch. I have an account in there. And no um, kidding, can we plug that? I'd love to see that. Sure. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I can sing a little bit. And then I, because um, my dream is to become a celebrity. Then I've tried auditioning for reality TV in the Philippines. I did two. I don't know if you've heard of Big Brother House, something like that. It's a UK program. We have mm -hmm. a version of that. I auditioned in that just for the sake of self actualization. But then eventually I realized that that's not for me. I even wanted to become a broadcaster because I really want to be on, on TV, things like that, but that's not for me. And I've realized that I'm not into that because I don't enjoy getting attention from people. It's more of I'm into the classroom, just behind the scenes, things like that, helping people. But I've, I've mentioned about poverty and what, how that drove me to get education, um, I'm part of the poorest of the poor in, in my country. Like mm -hmm. my mom was a laundry woman, my dad was hearing impaired. So it's more of, of my parents don't have a stable job to support the family. I don't remember, because back in the Philippines, um, recess that provided, like here in the US, we're in, we, we give food for, for, for lunch and breakfast and recess time to our kids. But over there, it's more of we have, students will have to be, um, providing their own money for recess. And I can't remember, Peter, a day that I have money in my pocket. So it's more of, I'm good at masking, like pretending that I'm just okay. Like if you'll ask me, how are you? I, my, my, my quickest response uh, will be, I'm okay, I'm good. Because yeah, of course. It's, it's more of, I'm trained to do that. I'm trained to pretend that I'm okay. Because uh, back then, during recess time, uh, my tendency will be to pretend that I'm busy because I don't want to look like a loser, not eating something while the rest will be, will be eating recess. That's too painful for me. And um, we, we wash the clothes in the neighborhood for us to have food on the table and just, just the basic food, not even the decent ones of like rice, rice and buy and things like that. No, yeah. uh, that's not the, the thing that we're doing. And um, I was able to finish my college degree without electricity, just the, 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 the kerosene lamp. Are you familiar of that? It's oh, yeah. just like a jar with 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 a cloth at the top and then powered by a kerosene. That's that's our life. And um, I even had experienced rejections from relatives. Like my mom really wanted me to to get a college education and she really sure. wanted me to, to become a teacher. Later on I realized that that was her frustration. She only got uh, sixth grade as her educational degree because uh, not educational degree but the highest uh, level of education because right after um, she finished sixth grade it's more of she was sent to work as a house nanny something like that yeah. so 
that's how it goes when you're from a poor family over there. And so um, when my mom was like going into our relatives to ask for like support, if they can help me to enroll, to enroll in, um, in a university, it's more of we were told that, you know what, your son is just being too ambitious. Um, he will never get there. What are you, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? You're poor, you will end up just being poor. Um, tell him to, to forget about getting into that. But um, another, another realization that I've learned in life and the things that happened to me, Peter, was, you know what? I believe in God and God actually destined people to be where they are. And yeah. uh, God planned me to be in this, in, in, in this profession. And so because I finished in the top 10% in high school, and so it's more of, I'm more or less qualified to, to enroll, uh, to, to get scholarships. Yeah. And because of scholarships, um, I was sponsored by Rotary Club. And then there's another um, organization that sponsored me. I was able to finish my, my college degree. And the only choice that I have is education because they won't sponsor any other program. I wanted to do mass communication because like I told you, I wanted to work in the broadcast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that, that didn't happen. And so I told my mom, um, when I finish this and when I, when I get a job and send my siblings, then I will go back uh, to, become, to, to, per, to fulfill my uh, mass communication degree. But that didn't happen. I realized that's not for me. And um, yeah, that's, that's my life. And I remember that because we're asked to wear uniform that I only have one t-shirt as a uniform from my first year to my fourth year. And um, because I belong to the DIN's list group before, Peter, then whenever yeah. it's honors day, um, we have to be going around the neighborhood to borrow uh, outfit to wear during, during ceremonies, things like that. That's my life. Um, very difficult, very hard, a lot of rejection, and poverty drove me to get into this. And another thing that um, pushed me to, to get into education, especially special education, was my dad was hearing impaired. And um, mm. I, was, I was actually a product of trauma, trauma from poverty, trauma from violence in a family, yeah. having a dad who never got to school, who never got and received any services out, out of being a special needs person. And I've realized later on why, what, because I, I, I kept thinking, why, why does our dad before chase us with knives and wanting to kill us? Why does he want it to be drunk all the time? And uh, I realized getting, after getting special education, that's actually part of the ill effects of not understanding um, his disability because nobody advocated for him. No, nobody explained to him that he has a disability and this is, and he has limitations in life that out of getting our attention and um, getting a way for us to be connected with him is to do, to be violent, something like that. So that's yeah. my realization. Yeah. No, it's interesting too, because you talked about like when you're a kid and you're on the playground and you're pretending like everything is fine. Right. And trauma 
I'm sure that helps you now in the position that you're at as a teacher and especially in special education to having been that to know how to identify when students are doing that or identify those red flags of when students are going through some kind of trauma because you've been there and you know what that looks yeah. like. Yeah, and it helped me uh, advocate more for my students yeah. that whenever I find that they need to be provided with this, that I really have to make a noise for them to get it. Um, in fact, um, I have a student uh, oh, I feel very guilty, Peter, because um, my schedule in a day is so back-to-back -back that um, I even have to sacrifice my lunch and uh, my planning time because I have a huge caseload. But I really feel that um, this student deserves more small group, more one-on-one -on -one -on -one time with me that I told my principal, you know what? I volunteer my... 3.30 to 4, just mm -hmm. to tutor this student. Um, but the principal insisted, uh, well, I have to pay you. And I told her, if it gives you problem looking for money to pay for me, what I told you, uh, Madam Principal, is I will do this voluntarily because I find the need for this student to do more. Um, I don't want that this student will be moving to first grade, lacking these skills because the more that he will struggle. And I know if that if a student struggles, then the tendency will be for the student to quit or for the student to develop a behavior that's not nice. And so, yeah, and um, getting through all of the difficulties in life um, gave me a lot of opportunities to know my students better, to know and how to help them more more, more importantly, to advocate more for them. And um, lately, Peter, I've realized that probably I'm also partly autistic because I have a son that, aside from my dad, who is special needs, I, my third son is uh, having developmental delay, but I'm seeing a lot of autistic characteristics in him. And mm -hmm. so I thought of, he probably got that from me. Uh, I know I'm weird. And I, I know I have weird traits on me. And one of the things that I hate, Peter, is something that's repetitive. And mm -hmm. writing is one of, one of the things I hate. And um, when you're a teacher, you get to write lesson plans every day. And lesson planning in the Philippines is way traumatic than what we're doing here. We're stringent with lesson planning. That's crazy. It's stupid over there, Peter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I teach there because that's part of, of my advocacy um, to help Philip, uh, public school students. And we've talked about uh, streaming and the earnings that I get, the revenues that I get are actually used to help the public schools um, in the Philippines. Like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And um, that's my way of like helping because, like I said, I'm a product of the public school. My heart is in public education. I believe in the transformational value of public school because I'm a product of that. If not, if, if not because of public school, if not because my teachers told me that I have the potential and they believed in me, I could have not pursued education and I could have just like uh, quit along the way. There were, during my, during my university days, there were times that I told my mom, that I'm gonna quit because um, 
it's too much for me. Like poverty is really hitting me. And then the things that's going on with my dad is actually uh, something that's unbearable. But my mom uh, told me, well, if, if you will do that, you can do that. But will you be able to stand working in the field at the back of our house? And I, I tried it, Peter, for the sake of like um, convincing myself that, you know, this is better than going into the university with uh, in utmost poverty. But I can't stand being under the heat of the sun. And so I said, well, I'll just continue this. And... Um, Right after I finished my, my degree, I was hired right away in a, in a private school. So it's like a four hour bus drive. It's in the middle of a huge, the, the, the second or the third biggest city in the Philippines. So I, 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 was, I was with Asian Learning Center and it, it's like uh, I worked with the, the, with, with the wealthy people. And um, First three years, I don't like my work. Like it, it, it's repetitive. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of demands. And so the third year, I thought of like, because I work with parents who are managers of Philippine Airlines, who are managers of Shangri-La Hotel. These are like big companies in the Philippines. I thought, of, why don't I switch uh, career? And so I resigned. I applied for Philippine Airlines. I already. You got- actually did. You actually resigned. Yes, because I thought of like, oh, I love their uniform. They, they look great in their uniform. And so I said, why don't I get into that? Um, I think uh, I have the height and I have the degree and I can speak, something like that. The height? Yeah, because there's a height requirement when you're, when you're a flight attendant in the Philippines. It's way crazy over there with the requirements. Like there's like a, a, an age uh, requirement there. They have to check your teeth, whether uh, you have like a complete set and they have to check your skin. And it's my skin that actually disqualified me because I have oh. actually have warts on, 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 my, on, my, on my left arm. And so I said, um, this is not for me. And while I was staying home and um, pondering upon, upon where I will go, it's more of I missed the noise in the classroom. I missed that, and um, I thought of like, why don't I reapply? And good thing about about that private school was they liked me, and so it was easy comeback for me. From then on, Peter, it's more of I surrendered that this should be the profession for me. And then in between, I tried like Big Brother audition, and then I, I auditioned for Dream Academy. It's like a singing uh, reality show in the in the Philippines, but now. Um, I, I didn't get that. So, did you have to send in like a submission tape to those to those reality shows, or what does that look like? I have to to stay in a line. Like for Big Brother, I remembered my my number was like thousand something. So yeah. I have to wait for for my my turn to like cross the stage, not even standing there. Just or probably we were made to stand in there for like less than five seconds and then move. Just that. But the waiting uh, for for my my turn to be on that stage was like hours. God, you have to be yeah. like, I, I'm wearing long sleeves. I don't want the the warts. You know, this is gonna be the airline all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I'm now enjoying teaching, and um, I get the opportunities to travel to the U.S. Uh, supposedly, my coming to the U.S. was part of the teacher program 
the okay. plan because I like I like I've mentioned uh, from the private school I work in the public school but then some my 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 master's professor found me over there and she said I, I will invite you to join in the in the College of Ed and the State University and so I joined them. That was part one of our conversation with elementary special education teacher Eugene Kalangashian. After the break, we are picking that conversation back up as Eugene makes it to America. That is next here on Teacher's Lounge. I'm Peter Medlin. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if you are just joining us, good news. Teacher's Lounge is based on a really simple idea that all of us have had an educator, whether a teacher, a coach, or professor who inspired us and taught us something beyond the curriculum, helped us become the people who we are today. And we want to hear about the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And right now we are continuing our conversation with elementary special education teacher Eugene Kalangashion. He teaches at Jones for our International Baccalaureate World School in Freeport. He's originally from the Philippines and in part one of this conversation, we talked to him about his upbringing in the Philippines and what led him to becoming an educator. We pick up the story as he's working at a university and about to make the journey to America. After three years, they asked me to to be part or leading into being the program chair. I was already an assistant dean in the College of Ed. They, they wanted me to assume the deanship position. So it's more of part, of of part of the training was you have to be the program chair, you have to run like graduate programs, things like that. They wanted, yeah. they, they asked me to do the special ed. But when, when, when you're in a university, it's more of the mindset is, you should be ahead of your students because you will be producing teachers. So your knowledge, your skill sets should be way, way ahead of, of the teachers that you're producing. And I don't feel that. And so I said, um, why don't I join in this program? And so they sent me to Singapore to do benchmarking and then learn from the practices. They also sent me to Beijing to learn about the, the education in China. And well, so I still realized that no, I still need more. And why don't I join into this teacher exchange program between the U.S. and the Philippines, uh, sending J-1 teachers in the, in the U.S. And so my first assignment was the Washington State. I had a great time over there. They paid me well over there. And while I was there, I get paid in the Washington State. Well, at the same time, paid in the Philippines because I feel connected with them. That's not bad. Yeah. And, but, but then our visa was like, after five years, you have to go home right. and implement your learnings in the U.S., in the Philippines, but Freeport School District in the state of Illinois changed that for us. It's more of that didn't happen. They changed our, the Freeport School District, my current district, um, sponsored my visa. And so right now um, I'm, I'm having a work visa. And with a work visa, I'm not compelled to go home to the Philippines and implement uh, the two-year residency in there to implement the program out of that J-1 agreement within the U.S. and the Philippines. And, but uh, as a way of giving back, because like I've said, uh, my inspirations to public school, I volunteer there as a um, virtual professor for their MA in special ed program. I get to comment about their, their, um, uh, their course offering over there. So I'm still connected with that university and at the same time uh, helping the public schools. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you want to eventually go back to the Philippines or what is that? What do you think? My heart is in there because I have several properties in there. I have a little farm yeah. over there, uh, Peter. Yeah. Like I said, I don't enjoy the spotlight. I don't enjoy attention from people. Um, I enjoy being with my animals. I have five dogs over over there. I have goats. I have turkeys. I have chickens, things like that. How often do you get to go back? Um, it, But it's more of, I'll probably go back there after I spend 10 years here in Illinois where sure. I get pension, something like that. Yeah. 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 But, but I'm not saying that I'm not enjoying here. Illinois is such a beautiful place. I, I don't know if you're born and raised here, but this is actually one of the states where I see friendly people. Like um, here in Freeport City, um, it's more of people help one another. And if you'll ask, how is it at Jones Farrar? Um, it's the same thing. It's more of people are so welcoming, people are help, helpful, people are supporting one another, things like that, which is beautiful. And so we purchase a house here. So that means to say we're going to be staying here longer, I think. So, We talked a little bit about your education growing up, public schools in the Philippines. And, you know, we always ask the question of if you've had a teacher at any point in your experience that really just inspired you or really that you look back on and thought, wow, that really helped me a lot. We find in this show that either it's one way or another, right? It's either someone had that teacher and they're like, I want to be that for someone else, or they didn't have that teacher and they say, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen to someone else. I want to yeah. make sure that I can be that for someone else. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. Uh, what do you yeah. think about when we say that? I actually have, and it's my second grade teacher. Yeah. And um, whenever I'm, I'm asked that question, that I'm quick to point her name. And what was she her name? Was Corazon Pinheiro. Mm. Um, she was the one who told me that, you know what, Eugene, um, you have the potential. Because I, from first grade, we, I, I was part of that curriculum that don't have kindergarten before. Mm. So our first level was first grade. And from first grade um, through sixth grade, I was third honors. Uh, I, I always in that spot because we have that kind of um awarding at the end of the year in the philippines and um in second grade it's more of mrs pinheiro told me that you know what eugene you have you have a potential if you will work hard you will become somebody in the future and you know what that stuck into my head and into my soul peter and um whenever whenever i am um, constrained with the challenges in life yeah of course that voice is, is the one that will remind me that, you know what? It's just a challenge. It's just a tribulation. Your aspirations, your, your dreams in life is always bigger than the challenges you're facing. And, and with that, it's more of, as a teacher, I also want to be like Mrs. Pinheiro. I also want to be that one voice into the lives of my students um, that, Whenever they're in, they're struggling. Whenever they're they're bombarded with challenges, that that I should be the one who will remind them that you know what this is just part of life. And and that Mister C had this before, but he became successful. You can be successful as well. And so that's that's one thing that I always want to 
develop, nurture, and instill into the lives and the minds of my students. Like yesterday, um, I had this student just having a hard time with retelling. I had this student and he has anxiety issues and we're looking into him having autism. But I told him, see, you can do this. Uh, why is it that whenever I'm testing you that you seem to be empty and blank? Are, are you nervous? Do you get nervous? Do, do you get anxious whenever you're tested? And he told me, yes, remember this. Uh, you're capable of doing this and today you've shown me. Remember that Mr. C believed in you. The next time I test you, always put that in, uh, in your head. Uh, find that voice first before telling me I'm ready for the retelling test, Mr. C, something like that. So yeah, Mrs. Pinheiro is something Spinier. that actually, um, that's actually the voice in me. And she helped me uh, overcome the struggles uh, in my in my life. That's yep. beautiful. Um, I, I can always remember her. Um, the only thing that I have to find out is, is she still alive? Because when I get the chance to go home to the Philippines that I really have to like um, meet with her and thank her about the influence that she had in my life, especially now that I was put into the position of like uh, being the nor Northwest regional teacher or something like that. Although yeah. I said that I don't <laughs> enjoy the, the attention that I'm getting, but mm. that was actually one of, of um, the questions in the interview process that we have to go to go through. And um, I remember it was her name that I can easily remember to be somebody who told me some somebody who believed in me. So uh, the, the, the lesson that we can get from here, Peter, is that if if there's a teacher who believed in a student, then more than likely that's that that student will remember the teacher and will be will become successful in life. So, Absolutely. Yeah. All right. The last quick ones we have for you is just what's something you wish more people knew about special education? What's something about special education you just think is more important than people might realize who don't have any experience with it? That our students are also capable, that our students are just like them. Our, my students may be different, but they are not less. So um, don't tell me that they only deserve this because they have special needs. No, um, they are human beings. They're capable of learning. They also deserve more. And um, that mindset, Peter, actually, uh, my wife had a, a not so good emotion yesterday because uh, it was my, my son's concert, the one that I told you to, yeah. to be autistic. Mm -hmm. And during the rehearsal in the morning, it's more of um, the teacher texted her that my son might not make it in the afternoon uh, because during the rehearsal, he was throwing, throwing a fit and he might throw a fit in the afternoon during the, the final presentation. And so my wife, probably because of her blind spot, we call it blind spot, like our assumptions in life. That it, and so she was crying. And so I told her, uh, tell the teacher that we will go there. Uh, that that um, that Miles, that's my, that's the name of my son. Yes, yeah. We'll have to go and sing, okay. And so when he came home in the afternoon, 
Miles asked for shower, and so I told my wife, give him a shower. That's gonna help his his mind setting. That should help him feel better. And so we did. And so we 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 went to the concert, and my son stood up in there. Uh, you can see that he's different, but you know he stood up in there. He never threw a fit. He was he was just because he has expressive limitations, so he can sing. But you know he was. Uh, doing his set this way, which is a way of like going with the flow, yeah. and a way of going up that he's also performing, and he did it. But my my wife was actually feeling bad, and, and um, I really insisted to tell the teacher to um, tell her that my son will have to perform because I don't want this feeling that. Because my son has a, has a limitation, he has this behavior tendency that he has to be excluded. No, um, I understand this work. I've done this work for 27 years. Um, I advocate for students. We want our students as much as possible to be exposed uh, to the best that we can possible. Um, but I, I also want my son to experience that. And um, so, I, 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 one thing that I want people to know is that our students are not less, that they're, they're, they're just the same human beings like we are. And uh, they have needs and, and that we can meet their needs, something like that. And so, yeah, that was our experience yesterday. And um, it made me realize, you know what? Um, a lot of teachers, don't realize the amount of work that that's the, that's required in this job. That's why I said, hopefully that the the Illinois uh, the, the the politicians will have to put in more money because we're doing a lot of work, Peter. Like there's a lot of demands in this yeah. work, and, but but there's less money that goes into the pocket, and so I know as a person I've spoken with my para-ed, because in a meeting today, we get the chance to huddle with, with this para-ed who's mm -hmm. also working with somebody in my caseload that has autism. And uh, this afternoon, I've, I've, I've learned that she also, has a, she also has a son who is autistic. And so the end of our conversation was, you know what, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, uh, sad thing about what we're doing is that we give our best to the students that we serve, however, they don't do the same to our kids, which is sad, yeah. which is sad. And so as a teacher, I just have to continue advocating most especially to, to the people and, and the students under my care. Up now, it is my relatively recent chat with Mira Church about her experiences overseas with teacher burnout, knowing your worth as a teacher and the weight of representation in the classroom. I've been experiencing burnout as an educator since before the U.S. even wanted to admit there was a pandemic going on because I got stuck here for Chinese New Year. I was still living in China and I only happened to come back because my parents were like, girl, how is it all these years and you always have all of these vacations, but you never vacationed in the United States. And my parents were like, oh, there's a ticket in your inbox, a United Airlines ticket for a Chinese New Year. And I was like, no way, like, 
I guess I'm going home. So I just got stuck. I just got stuck and I was teaching my class. China was very efficient in the way they handled at least Shanghai and my school. The way everything was handled, we didn't have a, like that much of a breath. We took about two weeks off when everything was first going down, but we were meeting consistently in those two weeks and we redid our curriculum to teach online. And then you were with that school teaching online, the students in Shanghai, like pretty much through that spring? Well, that every single day, I'm I'm awake, Shanghai schedule, which is the total opposite of the schedule in the US. They're 12 hours ahead. And so everything's shut down here. Everyone's like trying to figure out what's going on here. And I'm still teaching. I'm still teaching every single day. And not only that, all of my classes like had to be reworked. Yeah. How did you, even in retrospect, when you think back about that time, like how did you do that? I just had the best team, the best administration, the best parents. Literally, like it just breaks my heart that I had to leave a school like that. Yeah. Gosh. Oh, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That's, yeah, that was my that's favorite wild. school ever taught at. And you I would never get what I had ever at that school. What I like, I could never have it here in the US. How do you mean? Just the community or everything about it. It's just I taught at a bilingual experimental international school. So all the kids spoke dual language, they spoke their home language, and they spoke English. Yeah. Every single lesson, and they had to speak Mandarin. So that was a whole other thing because some people didn't speak Mandarin. And so every single lesson was taught in both English and Mandarin. I was curious how, so, so like now you've been, you've been back for a couple of years. Obviously that was such an insanely hectic, stressful time for you then talking about just like teacher burnout. Do you feel like have you gotten to be in a bit of a better place now than early 2020 or are we still kind of riding the lightning a little bit? Riding the lightning is definitely a great metaphor that I'm going to use in poetry class tomorrow. Yeah, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say like I was talking about with the old school, it's just so, so different here. Like right. there's not as much administration work there because you everything is kind of done for you because it has to be done a certain type of way for their government sure and here it's just like the administrators already have so much work you're doing a ton of administrative work it's just i don't think teaching in the u.s is just teaching anymore from when i first started there's so much more that's on your plate on any given day and so i think that contributes so much to the burnout and where you're just constantly, like you said, just writing that. Right. Cause there's the curriculum stuff, but there's also all of the social emotional stuff that goes on to it. All the other planning stuff that goes on on top of there. And then there's also the, you know, is there adequate compensation for all that extra stuff that you have going on that you're trying to manage at any given point. And on top of that, the general education classrooms, the population is all mixed up nowadays. Everyone almost needs an accommodation in the classroom versus when I first started teaching around 10, 11 years ago, yes, we did have accommodations in the classroom, 
And yes, maybe there needed to be more when I first started teaching, but there wasn't as many. Right. And now we're just having so many individualized learning plans. And then on top of that, we have my class, for instance, it's a co-taught room. So we have ELL learners, which are English language learners. We also have LSB1 learners, which are special education learners. And we have the general population. And so, yeah. And so I'm in charge of all of that. And yes, do other teachers come in? Of course. Of course. I love my new school because they do have the resources that my old school didn't have to where more teachers can come in and help plan and help teach the lessons. But hopefully you have some yeah, professionals, people that come in, hopefully. Whose name is on the door? It's my name. It's Miss Church. These are this is my class. And so I think too, we're seeing a lot more classes, which I do love. I love that they're they're all mixed up. And I love that everyone is getting exposed to the general education curriculum. But I'm just saying we're not trained for that in our teacher programs. And that's really not, it's just something that's missing when you're getting trained as an educator and something that you're really not getting compensated for as well. You're just doing so many jobs on top of just the one teaching job because now you have so many different types of learners too. And you really, for me, I really have to make sure all of my learners are in an environment where they have equitable education. Like it's yeah. not going to look completely the same for everyone, but yeah, they, all need, they all need access to the curriculum, all of them. Like right. I, I just wouldn't be able to sleep with myself if I wasn't doing the best I could to reach everyone. Right. And there's actually some new data that just came out a couple weeks ago that was talking about how, you know, there's so much more need now than a couple years ago. When you look at like paraprofessionals, people that provide extra support in the classroom for, for kids that need it. So the, the need has gone way up, but the supply has gone down. And so you could see how those things get exacerbated in, in classrooms all over the state, all over the country, really. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's just, um, because then I always feel bad when I say these things out loud because people are like, well, you signed up for this, you're a teacher. And it's like, no, like you don't understand. People can't even wait to get their kids off of vacation. And now you're telling me all day long, not only am I in charge with their learning, but I'm in charge of all the admin work that goes with it. I'm in charge of their social emotional well-being. I'm in charge with if they're getting hurt and they need a band-aid and they're bleeding, I'm in, and they're emotion, like just their daily beyond the social emotional, just like their daily emotions and how to mold that. It's just there's a lot of layers and the classrooms are packed with students. Right. And just the kind of things that have been happening to households since the pandemic, which these households already had very interesting dynamics at a pandemic, <laughs> you know, these kids are really seeing so much at a young age and they're yeah. trying their best in the classroom, but like you're also navigating that as a teacher. I was curious about how your perspective has, has shifted over your time as an educator, especially when it comes to 
how important representation is in the classroom and being that for kids in your class that you know maybe don't have a ton of teachers of color, maybe don't have any Afro-Latino teachers that they've ever had, of what that kind of means to you as you move through your career, as you are that person that has their name on the wall, as you are that person that's up in front of the class. I think it's a heavy burden. Yeah. It is the heaviest burden um, as a teacher of color and almost always, except for, I want to say the last two years where I was at a charter, um, I've always been one of the only teacher of color or the only teacher of color. Yeah. And so I take it so seriously because a lot of times this is a child's first interaction with an African-American person, or at least a positive role model, unlike a stereotype, which they may have seen or a trope in a movie or something like that. And right. so it's so it's nerve wracking. Like I really try to put my best foot forward all the time. Um, you always like, will see me like, just try to be really happy with the students. Even when I have a tough moment, like I walk them through my tough moment. So I show them how I regulate my emotions. And like, I, it's such a serious, it's, we could go on all day about the weight that that carries, but I'll just say this. I remember one time I wore, it was a few years ago, I wore my hair in these like two buns and it was like very just Afro. There's like no other word to say. I had Afro buns and it was just very poofy that day because it had been raining and snowing and sleeting and one of the students didn't want to go inside of the classroom because of my hair. Like she hated it. She said a racial slur about my hair and it got into a really big deal. Another little girl had seen the interaction and the little girl waited till all the adults were away and had told the little girl, that made me really uncomfortable when you said that to Miss Mira. Her hair looks really nice today and I don't understand why you would act that way to her. And I just thought it's so important that these children have someone that looks like me in their spaces, because this is exactly how allies are born. I didn't say anything to that child. I didn't tell her to say that to that child. That child saw a positive role model in an African-American woman and made her own judgments and checked racism on herself. herself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's such a, you know, again, we talk so much on this show just about the weight of being a teacher generally, right? Like even without anything else that we're talking, just in terms of you being in the classroom and, you know, the weight of you don't know what you're going to say or do in front of some child that they're going to, you know, carry with them that's going to stick with them for the rest of their life on top of everything else that we're talking about, that extra weight that we're describing right now. Everything is so touchy. It's so political mm. that you're afraid on top of being a teacher of color. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing to my coworkers. I remember this year when I was interviewing for a new position, I was right at this job. And I remember I asked in the interview, she asked, do you have any questions for me? And I asked a question that I thought was within my rights and I worded it very well. Mm -hmm. very neutral tone and she said that makes me feel uncomfortable that you're coming at me as a black woman like very harsh 
And I just thought to myself, I'm just ask, I'm just asking a question about the job. Like it's I you've been asking me for a whole month of interviews, very tough questions. And finally at the end, I come up with one question and it's touchy and I'm coming off as an angry black woman. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like very touchy. The way I never know what to say anymore. I feel like I'm afraid to even come to admin when I have a problem with something going on because am I going to be an angry black woman? Am I going to be the black teacher that can't collaborate? It's like, then I'm teaching children that don't look like me. So if I say something, they say it at home, the parents are like, why is this black teacher saying this? Like, what is going on? It's so nerve wracking. Sometimes the other day we're talking about Christopher Columbus because we're talking about the oh, early God. wars and someone yeah. asked a question about Christopher Columbus and the whole, I was literally in my bed tossing and turning because I'm like, I hope I answered that question correctly. I know I'm the only, technically I'm the only African-American teacher. There's a nurse, there's a librarian. Right technically I'm the only one mm. so everyone's kind of been like seeing what I'm doing not in a weird way but they're just like hey new teacher what's going on and I'm like ah oh, and then I'm the only one that looks like me so it's the added layer I hope I said the right thing about Christopher Columbus and it's just every single day I'm really hyper aware of everything I'm saying whether it's with my kids whether the families and especially when it comes to my coworkers. Like yeah. it's just unimaginable. People who don't look like me, I know they don't carry these kind of stressors when they're thinking about how to interact or even when they're interacting because you can tell how I interact with people or how I say things versus other people. It's like very calculated and I'm trying to be upbeat. And then if I do like say something that could be controversial, I'm always apologizing right after or it's just different. Right. And of course, those support systems that are in place, particularly for teachers of color, are not there most of the time because there's also very, very few, you know, administrators of, of color in the buildings. I think the rates are slightly better but we're talking about slightly better being like you know two percent to four percent or something like that so it's tough but uh recently i've met a really really amazing co-worker and i'm so glad to have met her because yeah. i have not been able to make a really good solid friend so far um as since coming back as a teacher yeah and she told me I just really stopped caring that I'm like a very dark Latina because it was starting to eat at me. Mm. And now I really just talk from the heart and I don't care what anyone's going to say because I prove myself with my teaching. I prove myself with my lessons and how I'm involved with the community and everything else. And just I'm done caring what everyone else has to say because I know that I'm putting my best foot forward. Finally, it is our conversation with Tom Vishen. 
He is a ceramics instructor at McHenry County College, and I got to make the trip up to his classroom and studio where he gave me a full tour, and we talked about his life as an artist and his journey as an educator, and we also showed off a selection of his and his students' work. We've got sandblasters, glazes, pots, kilns, 3D printers, and much more in this conversation. When you do build out that time for yourself just to make art for your own satisfaction, yeah. what do you go to? Is it just throwing or like what do you, what do you do? Well, it depends. Yeah. Um, my job here keeps me busy. Where I just want to come in on the weekends and just sit down and throw, I make bottles, I make bowls, platters, and it's just put on some nice music. Yeah. And I just like making pots. And I've got my students usually are in here working. This place is always hopping on the weekends. They come in Friday, Saturdays. And stuff. On the weekends, they oh, come yeah. in. We have open studio time. That's amazing. So it's, it's like a full class on the weekends here. It's, they, they love it. One thing that I take pride in is I'm never satisfied. I'm always trying to find something new, something interesting. Yeah. My, my, I have a group of probably about 30 to 35 advanced students. Some uh -huh. of them have been taking clay with me since I've been full-time here for the last 15 years every single semester. So you've had students for 15? Yep. Yeah? Wow. And I feel that I have to keep the program fresh. I right. have to bring in something new, um, something to challenge them, something to think about. But, of course, he fell in love with ceramics long before 3D printers invaded the artist's studio. Like many people, I got pulled into ceramics by wanting to throw on the potter's that's typically what people get started with? Yeah, once people sit down and they, they that challenge of centering clay and making a shape out of this gooey, mushy material, it's seductive a little bit. And so that was kind of my first taste to, in ceramics. So um, when I was young and I took my first ceramics class in high school, that's where it started. So I learned the basics, you know, making cups and bowls and bottles and forming and shaping. But when I went to my undergraduate and started at Northern Michigan University, I continued to you know, improve my skills, learn, um, and I would throw forms, and then I would start deconstructing and reconstructing these thrown vessel forms. And then this piece that you're looking at right here, this is relatively new. This was prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, I went back to my roots you know my throwing i love throwing pots that's why i got into ceramics that's a lot of what my program is about and we'll talk about that later on this is a wheel thrown altered form but with 3d printed pieces attached to it so it's like 21st century technology ceramics meets you know 5, traditional yeah 5000 year old forming methods so this is kind of a newer investigation that piece he's showing me, it looks like a traditional pot or vase with a small base. It's intricately designed, yes, but it looks traditional, a style that's been around, like he said, for thousands of years. But then orbiting the outside is a sleek, futuristic ring, the cutting edge married and literally connected to the traditional pottery form. Like I said, he's constantly on the lookout for new ideas, new ways to bring new things to his classes. And sometimes... You even need to look underground. Yeah, this so, looks like we got some bronze, almost. So this is a pit firing. And um, we I've had many guest artists here over the years. And each artist I learned something new from. And 
I look at their techniques and then I kind of put my own twist on it. Mm -hmm. So in the fall, what we do is I have a maybe like a six foot by ten foot by three foot deep hole in the ground back by the fire training facility. You've got a literal hole in the ground. Yep, yeah. and it's lined with brick. And so my students, we do this once in the fall, right around Halloween, and we throw pots, and then we we sand them, we polish them, and then what happens is we take saltwater-soaked corn husks, dried-out manure, horse stall bedding, pine needles. So just the usual ingredients. Lots of... Um, <laughs> Lots of wood chips and branches and stuff like that, and we bury these. Like it's like a stew of about 250 pieces. And I built an air system to circulate air with an air blower underneath this, and so we submerge all these pots and all these different materials, and then we light it on fire. This is like a, a full like uh, religious ritual that you've got going on. <laughs> it, it is an event. Yeah. It is an event. <laughs> And so what you're looking at here is there is no glaze on this. This is all of the materials smoldering and burning and the pots are kind of settling down. It takes about 24 hours for it to do its thing. And these are markings. So when you look closer... This is just a uh, baptism by fire. <laughs> That's actually... I like that one. I'm going to keep that one. Yeah, you can have that so one. So these, the, these are the corn leaves with the gold markings. The sawdust is the black with the carbon. Um, the Where's the manure at? That's right there. That's right there. <laughs> really? The manure burns really hot because they have, like, methane. Yeah. And so you get these lustry pearl kind of yeah. color there. And so it just, it smolders and settles, and then it's very random. Like, there, this is not painted. This, this was just a raw piece of clay that went in there. And then here's another is, you Do they build out a system of, like, air ventilation? Underneath it? it. So because how it goes you, down. How did you just have to, like, watch a bunch of videos and read about that? How did you even know how to do that? Well, the artist that showed this to me when okay. I was at the workshop, yeah. she used a leaf blower in a gutter. <laughs> <laughs> sure. What yeah. I did is I found a really nice industrial blower, yeah. put an air valve on it, and then did really nice piping, like metal piping underneath yeah. it, so it circulates nice and even. So almost every piece comes out perfect. And then this is another example of the wow. different markings and stuff like that. They look that uh, beautiful. What do you call that when outer space? Galaxies? Several tables in the studio are filled with his students' work. He's got newspaper clippings of them, detailed backstories, and we've got lots of pictures too over at WNIJ.org for you to go and see pictures of them yourself. My oldest student is 85 years old, and my youngest is 15. And when you put 17, 18, 19 year olds, 20 uh -huh. year olds getting their associates with 60, 70, and 80 year olds, it's never a dull moment. No. <laughs> it's never a dull moment. And, and something magical happens in the studio that you will never get at like a, like a four-year institution. A lot of hmm. the students at a four-year institution, they've been accepted to the program, they're developing a body of work. They're on a very specific track. Yeah. Yes, at a community college, anybody can take a pottery class. So if anyone can take pottery, how do you get started? When someone joins up for the first time, they've never been in a ceramics class, how long before they actually have like something that they have 
you know, made with their hands that they, you know, can hold? Like how we have our first firing about three weeks into the semester, and you're going to get a chance to see the different kilns and stuff like that. I'm going to walk. You yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to walk you through the process. Uh-huh. And some of them have had ceramics before in high school. Yeah. Some of them haven't. My philosophy is, is I assume no one's ever touched clay. So let's meet the kilns, why don't we? These electric kilns are primarily used for bisque firing. Um, and so it goes from that. And then afterwards, what happens is that's bisque ware. So this has been fired to about 1,850 degrees, and now it's porous. So all the physical and chemical water has been removed from the clay. So when you dip it in the glaze, guess what? It's going to soak it in. Attaches right to the surface. There you go. And then, obviously, you would have to clean the bottom off because this is glass. Right. <laughs> and it stick to the shelf. You said 1,850 degrees? Yes. It's a lot that's of degrees. The, that's the first firing. Oh, we go hotter than that. Oh, man. Yep. So that's just bisque fire. This is actually just like a very beautiful kind of machine. Yeah. So this is a gas kiln. We fire, and this is how I was trained. This is how I was teached. I love gas firings. There is a certain aesthetic with gas firing. That's amazing. An aesthetic to the actual piece the, of pottery, too? Yes, the glaze, the color of the clay body. In a real simple sense, what happens in here, this will be loaded with hundreds of pots. You get to about 1,500 degrees. You do what's called glaze reduction because all of these metallic oxides, your alumina, your cobalt, your coppers, all of those oxygen molecules are now unstable. So when you play around with that oxygen and gas ratio, you get beautiful reds, beautiful iron spotting. Lots of different things happen to these pots. And it, it takes years to learn how to fire these correctly. Then he takes me outside to see even more kilns, some of which, again, he's building himself. Okay, you ready for this one? I'm ready. This one's going to blow your mind. Whoa. This is a whole tiny building we've got out here. So actually, my colleagues did think I was going to be moving in here. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have a cot somewhere around yeah. here? <laughs> it, it Put was, in a small kitchen in the corner, you'd be ready to go. It was, it was, it was a big joke um, going around with yeah. my colleagues and stuff like that. So remember when we said soda firing? Yes, we did. This is my new soda kiln. New? Yep. I've been building this for two years. With the help of, which we'll talk about it, I have four people in my life that are teachers um, that have been highly influential. One is my first ceramics teacher, Margaret Sullivan, um, and she kind of, you know, I had her freshman year. And then in my sophomore year, I had a gentleman by the name of Kurt Webb, and she had taken a sabbatical. And he filled in for that sabbatical, and then she came back on my junior and senior year of high school. So Margaret was a great mentor, kind of got me through school, got me in high school. And then Kurt, it was interesting. I had him that one year. Sophomore year, yeah. Sophomore year in high school. I finished high school, never saw him. I'm in my second year of graduate school. I haven't seen him since my sophomore year, and he shows up. He took a sabbatical from Glenbrook South to finish up his MFA, and we were reunited. As peers this time. Yes. He was, wow. Yeah. Huh. He, he went to finish up his MFA. I was in my MFA. And he has been such a huge part of my life. Now we're back inside the studio. And I've learned a bit about the teachers that helped mold him into the educator he is today. But I was still curious about his own journey to get to McHenry County College starting from back when he was in college. 
You said there was a moment where you yeah. thought about dropping out. And no, I did drop you out. You did drop out. I dropped out after my freshman year. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I enrolled. I lived in the dorms. hated the dorms. wasn't right for me. Yeah. And then I moved back, and I got an apartment in the city of Chicago yeah. at Six Corners. And that, I was miserable. And so that following fall semester, after that summer, I packed back up and went back to school. And it was the best decision I ever made because I wouldn't be here doing this. Um, and it's, it's kind of those experiences that make me go above and beyond in my program. Like, you know, helping students because I know what it's like to be in that situation of like, you can't really see the end yeah. and the benefits of all the hard work. And so I have a certain sensitivity when I'm in here working with students because I was there and I remember it. And, and I wouldn't trade it for what I have now. I, the, McHenry County College, I come in here every day and I'm just glad I'm here. I love my job and I love what I do here and I don't take it for granted. I finished um, graduate school, I moved home, mm -hmm. I had some debt. Like a lot of people, I moved back in with my parents. I'm like, yeah. i got to pay this stuff off. I had all of these wild jobs. Like, I got a job at, um, like, for forklift mechanics. Oh, I did that too, yeah. Dispatching <laughs> dispatching forklift, forklift yeah. mechanics with Nextel walkie-talkies. Sure, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I taught the night class here at McHenry County College. I was an adjunct here for about seven years. And then the full-time instructor, Susan Galloway, yeah. who had been here since the college basically started. Mm -hmm. She was the main instructor. She ended up retiring, and I applied for the position along with a bunch of other people, and um, I got the job. And it was, it was life-changing. I love what I do. My job here, my life as an artist, my personal life, it's all one. It, I don't even feel like I come into work. It, and, and that's a good feeling. Was that immediate though, or no? No, it's as I get older. Yeah. You know, I've said this before. I'm going to be 50 years old. Time is starting to move. <laughs> I'm getting. I'm getting a little older. It's getting a little yeah. bit more difficult. But, the physicality of, of working with the clay is getting a little bit harder. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I I kind of have seen the word retirement pop up. Oh gosh. Like planning, like oh, maybe 10, 15 more years. That's it. You know. I think sometimes people might not think of ceramics and pottery as an art form that's inherently emotional. You know, it's practical. I need a bowl, I make a bowl so I can eat out of the bowl. There's a utility to it, and you might not picture people pouring their soul into it. When you're sitting there working in clay, some people may think, oh, this is just a teapot. That teapot can be a lot more mm -hmm. than just a teapot. There could be a lot of other issues spinning around up there. A lot of other issues spinning around up there. I like that. And it came even more into focus when he showed me one of his students' pieces. I was scrambling to, to put an assortment of student workout. And I really, really like these. And they're little housing structures. Right. And it's, it kind of looks like a tin roof almost. Yeah. It's distressed. They're rough. But they're brightly colored. Yeah. So this student was making these. And I had just, you were on your way here, and I had sent her a message. I go, you made these a couple years ago. 
but I can't quite remember why you were doing them. <laughs> and this is where, like in my advanced class, mm-hmm. where they've gone from just learning the technical side of things and trying to develop ideas, looking at things from the outside and bringing it into their work. And she, and she just sent me this picture. She's in Puerto Rico right now. And this happened like 10 minutes before you got here. See the houses? Yeah. So in her message she sent me, this was from, I'll read you exactly what she sent me. The devastation then happened in Puerto Rico during Hurricane Hugo. Yeah. So that's what those pieces are about. Yeah, those bright houses with all the distress on it. Yeah, because this is her mom lives in Puerto Rico. She's from Puerto Rico, but she lives here in Crystal Lake with her husband. She's visiting her mom for the next week. Oh and goodness. so she goes, she goes, look at the background. Yeah. That's what my pieces are about. Like, some people may look at those and they may not even realize, oh, these are these cute little structures. They're not cute. You know, I think it's time to show off some more of that cool equipment in the studio at McHenry County College. One of them, I didn't quite realize was used in ceramics, is a sandblaster. I know, a sandblaster. It's as cool as it sounds. So I come in here on the weekends. Of course, yeah. And all the sloppy clay that the scraps mm-hmm. get thrown in there. There's 50 pound bags of pre-mixed stoneware. Put 150 pounds of dry mix, 100 pounds of slop. Turn that on in about 15, 20 minutes. You've got 300 pounds of recycled clay. Goes in a barrel. <laughs> yeah, that'll keep you in shape a little bit. It keeps me in shape. So this right here is your airline. When you cut it away from the pipe, it's off. When you turn it on, Allows the air to go in. Yeah. We're at about 85 psi. Okay. And this is a sandblasting booth. So the, basically, the way this works is you open the door right here. Uh-huh. You put your piece inside that you're going to sandblast. This is the sandblasting gun. Right. So this is so what you're going to use. The air blows up here and it pulls the sand through there and blows out the tip. Yeah. And it recycles itself. It falls to the bottom and it pulls Collects it back, back up. In, yeah. Then there's a vacuum attached to it right here that pulls out the dust and debris. So it keeps the sand clean. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. This was huge last semester. I'm sure. People flipped out over this. <laughs> so I have to give yeah. you the microphone. Yes. And the gloves pop up. <laughs> I, this is our ventilation system, so I kind of rigged this to be able to suck the dust out, so yeah. you don't have to worry about any dust whatsoever. This is a HEPA filter, and that just extracts anything. The gloves just puffed up, and we're ready to go. And we're ready to blast some sand. We're ready to go. Whoa. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and isn't it amazing that that vinyl stays right in place? And I'm going to go a little bit aggressive here. So we have a nice contrast of shiny to that beautiful kind of satiny surface. We reach in. We've got our cup. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. Wow. <laughs> and then you just take this, snap it closed, turn that off, and we'll go ahead and turn off the air right here, and we'll go see what it looks like.
The cup, unsurprisingly, turns out gorgeous. He put vinyl stickers on the sides in various designs in order to get maximum color and texture contrast between the uncovered clay and the parts covered by the sticker. I watch him peel off the stickers and uncover a gorgeous teal blue figure eight lying underneath. You know, it's hard to get more tactile and working with your hands than that, so it feels only natural to move from that to the future, to his clay 3D printing machine. Picture a giant vertical tube filled with clay, almost like a syringe. Then a tip where clay comes out in thin strands, building your clay pot layer by layer, the tip slowly moving up as it goes. Then a computer next to it where you use software to build your piece. There are thousands of configurations of texture, shape, sure. so, but we're going to keep it relatively simple because we could do this all day. So I just need to make sure my printer settings are there. Then I go to my object settings and this is in millimeters. So that's a hundred. So we're going to make it 200. So it's roughly, what is it? 25 millimeters is roughly an inch. So this is 200. So it's roughly eight inches. I'm going to turn the visualization on to what we call extrusion. So we can get a little bit better of a rendering. Pump it up here. And then this is how you shape. So. I'm going to bring this to 150, maybe make this 100, and then make this 50. So we are in real time shaping this, yes. this pot. And then they have all these really cool effects, and they call them a wave type. So there's square, sawtooth, sine wave. Those were some of the examples that I was showing you. So we're just going to pick sawtooth. And you'll see right away, see how it makes those little points Whoa. right there? Pretty nifty, right? I'm definitely nifty. So then basically, once you're happy with your form, I'm going to take this, and then we'll put NPR21 <laughs> for our name. And then you click one, it creates a G-code file. The printer reads G-code. And then we need the Potterware file because you can't reopen the G-code. Right. That's the... That's the code that it prints on. The only way you can edit this design now is to reopen. So you got to have that Potterware file to be able to, if you wanted to make, make any tweaks to it, design right. and stuff like that. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take our little bucket here. Formerly used for pickles, not anymore. <laughs> and we'll take this. So we get a, a little stream of, of wet clay that's falling on the tip here. <laughs> Pretty funny. Looking. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so now I'm just feeling this to make sure it's at the right consistency. Okay. So and that, looks, that's good. Seems good? Yeah. Okay. Because if the clay is too firm, it doesn't work. And I think that is okay, and then we're off to a good start. Okay. So we're off. And this is, I mean, this is building fast. Oh, yeah. You can control the speed, the pressure. Just raised up again for another layer. Yep. Steffi Mealy. Yeah. She's the adjunct that teaches digital media here at the college. Here at the college, yeah. And she loves clay. Right. And she has been taking ceramics for about three or four years here now. Yeah. And her and her husband are tech people. Right. They know a lot about 3D printing. They know about digital media, graphic design, all of these things. And so her and I just started plowing through this. 
and figuring out all the little corks and and she has the skill set to build the website and do the slicing and the coding and all of these things. And so it was a real nice relationship. I was going to say, it's not just like you guys, you know, I mean, a big, obviously a big part of it is like getting the funding just for the printer, but yeah. you guys helped kind of create the, the website and the yeah. software for this to even yeah. just be able she, to work. She did it all. Well, like, because that's that's her field of expertise, and, and I imagine other people use this. A lot of the other people use this website outside of the college and everything. Yeah. Oh, it's around the world. It's a subscription based. That's you pay a yearly subscription for it. That's pretty wild. Do you feel like being an educator is that influenced your creative process a lot? You know, there's a that's a that's a great point. You know, a lot of people in ceramics they'll develop a style and a yeah. form and a shape and they'll make it for years and yeah. do subtle subtle shifts mm-hmm. and you'll 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 see that body of work i don't have that i kind of like my work that i make kind of ties into what i'm doing in the classroom i'm sure yeah cuz it's on your mind all the time yeah, yeah. i mean i make pots uh-huh. and i love making pots you know, just traditional vessels and sure. stuff like that. And that's a big part of it. That's a lot of my students love making pots. But I go through these phases, the chicken pot phase. What phase are you in now? I have this all planned out. Eventually, <laughs> when I get the kiln done, yeah, is when I got this 3D printer... Which, by the way, we're making incredible progress right now. Yeah, it's moving along. We, we, we'll we check this here. Where are we at? We're at 95% finished. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But incredible. It, what I do in the classroom definitely influences what I, what I make. Mm-hmm. The molds that we received mm-hmm. from Bunny, yeah. um, that led to a whole series to a solo exhibition. Those two pieces on the table are going to Northern Illinois University tomorrow. I'm delivering them to the gallery manager for a faculty, a community college faculty show. So, and I had a couple of those pieces downtown in a gallery showcasing them, and people appreciated them, and I really liked them. It was a solid body of work. But my next body that I'm interested in here, we're finished. Hold on. We're finished. We're finished. we got to stop that conversation for a second. Finishing it touches. And then it moves it right to you. Now, you, now it looks like you can touch it, but you can't. It's gooey, wet clay. Yeah. So this has to start transitioning from gooey, wet to what we call leather hard. And then you can remove it from the bat, and uh-huh. then you can attach a slab to the bottom of it. You can put some handles. You can make a lid for it. Or you can just leave it the way it is. I think we, we've got to take a photo of it. We've got to show people the handiwork that went into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. But back to that and that question of where where am I going now with yeah. my own personal work? I would like to sit down and focus on 3D printing and wheel-thrown forms in the the merging together of those Just two. like that piece that we started yeah, off with. That was the beginning of it. I, I found a lot of inspiration. I'm naturally curious. It feels good. I can, I've can done different planning and sketching of different forms, and I just need to find the time. That time, as I'm sure you can tell by now, 
can be hard to come by when he's putting almost all of that into the ceramics program. But over the last 15 years or so he's been a teacher, there have been a lot of memorable moments and a lot of emotional projects that meant a lot and stick with him to this day. You guys helped create an installation about, it was a mural, like a, a permanent mural representing families dealing with profound personal loss. Oh, oh, that, oh, that's, that's, so that one, um, oh my gosh. So my, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> I did. You struck a chord on that one. Yeah, no, take your time, do. So, actually, I forgot that that was that was still out there. So, right around 2009, when I first started full time here at the college, um, my mom had a reoccurrence of colon cancer. Oh man! And so, she had passed away. And it it was rough. It was rough. Yeah, no. We had to deal with hospice, and and so after all of that had gone down, my mom had passed. Yeah. I was now here teaching full time, and the hospice that we used was in Barrington. I think it's called Journey Care now. It's off of Highway 14, and. We did a tile project with kids that were losing, that I, we made all these tiles. It was, I think it was called Camp Courage. Yeah. And it was family and their children, and they were dealing with a loved one that had either passed or was in the process of being terminally ill. Yeah. And we did this tile project with these kids and I had a lot of my advanced students do this with me. So it was like the 15 of us. I rolled out all the slabs. I had stamps where they could put letters and numbers and cut shapes and stuff like that. And I gave each one of these families that showed up for this Camp Courage. And I'm 99% sure it was called Camp Courage. Yeah. And this threw me a curveball on this one. And we brought all the stuff there and they decorated them and I, we, we got it all back here, and I glazed them all, and it was way more emotional than anything I've ever experienced because some of these kids are working with their parent, and their parent is terminally ill, oh, or their parent had passed, and my students didn't really know how intense this was going to be. Yeah, I can't imagine that. And we, when we got back, we didn't show it when we were there, but when we got back, we were like, wow, that was a lot. That was heavy. And so I brought all the tiles back. It was like 15 tiles. It was a group effort. Everybody shared. And then they came out beautiful with the glazes. And then I returned them to the facility, and they're permanently installed in the entry area of the facility in Barrington. That those kids so, helped make with, with their parents? Yeah. And the, the, it, was, it was my way of giving back to these nurses that took care of my mom in her final months. Yeah, my gosh. And, and it was right as I had gotten the job here, I'm like, it just kind of happened. And I'm like, this is, this is good. But I wasn't really knowing what I was going to, I didn't know what I was going to feel, what I was going to feel or what I was expecting. I'm just like, oh, we're going to roll some tiles. We're going to decorate these. <laughs> right. But when we got there, holy moly. I mean, it was incredible. Like you said, 
Sometimes there can be a lot of issues and feelings spinning around up there with your clay. Thanks so much for listening to another year of Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests you've heard in 2023. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do consider subscribing, leaving us a rating, or sharing it so we can get even more perspectives, even more educators on the show. You can subscribe to our Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's page over at WNIJ.org. A big thank you to the band Kind Ofs for providing the awesome music you hear in each and every episode of this show. And I have been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we will be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya!